Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I sounded surprised there. I was like, hello. Anyway, hello. Welcome to Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, I'm joined today by return guest, Derek Hagan, founder of Meaningful Money, a financial therapy and training firm. Uh, Derek helps clients live intentionally and mindfully using money as a tool to support their best life. And he also trains advisors to do the same through training, masterclasses, and educational content. Uh, he's one of my favorite discoveries content-wise of, of uh, 2023, which is why I've had him back uh, back on today. Welcome to the show, Derek. Thank you for having me and having me back. It's, it's always fun to, to chat. Yeah, we got a we got a great response last time. I think from all the things you shared, we had you know uh, easily uh, 250 episodes in, easily a top ten in terms of sort of the the response that I got. You know, just personal notes from people, uh, personal feedback, texts. That's always super meaningful to me. So thank you for for coming back and sharing some more wisdom with us. Absolutely. Happy to hear it. Yeah. So uh, we are here today to talk about resistant clients uh, and, you know, everyone's favorite topic. And and I, I wanted to start with an observation that I've made, and, and maybe you've made a similar one, maybe not. Uh, but there seems to be a chasm in my anecdotal experience between what the research says about client noncompliance and what advisors say about their own clients. So, you know, depending on who you ask, non-compliance with advice is going to be somewhere in the 50% range. And the research, meaning that, you know, if an advisor has 100 clients, half of those clients are going to be ignoring their advice in some meaningful way. But then when I talk to advisors and, and sort of share these kind of stats, you know, the the advisors will say, well, not me, you know, that everyone does what I what I say. Uh, have you seen the same thing? Have you not? And and if so, what do you think accounts for this this difference? I don't know that I I've seen that level of of disconnect. But admittedly, I'm less familiar with the the research that you're talking about. So if it's the case, so if, if I'm an advisor, my first question, you know, I even asked this to myself as you were going through that, was to question. The data. What are they? Who's in this data? Who's in this data set? Are you talking to brokers? You're not talking to RIs. You're not talking to people like me. If you were to find people like me, uh, of course, that would be higher. Uh, so I fell for uh, a victim to confirmation bias. I think that everybody falls victim to literally where I don't even notice things that don't fit my narrative, so to speak. And I'm very easily going to see things that do. So I can imagine a situation where I have tons of clients. They're all implementing my investment advice and they're implementing my advice when I told them to go see that tax professional and they're implementing my advice when I told them that they need to tone down their spending or maybe they need to dial up their spending and they all did it. But I forgot to even recognize those clients that 
we've talked about going to update their estate plan for a year and a half and they're not doing it. So I don't even remember that. So that's just my amateur answer to, it feels like it's probably a failure to notice the, the clients who aren't implementing. Yeah, one of the most interesting things I found when researching the behavioral investor had to do with this idea of rosy retrospection. And in that book, I looked at the data around how closely people remember their trading history relative to what actually happened. So this is looking at like day traders and people who actively trade trade shares. And then they ask them, you know, how what percent were you up or down? And, you know, how how many trades did you make and how did you do? And what we found is that people disproportionately remembered the good stuff and sort of shoveled the bad stuff under the rug, which is, you know, human nature. We're all sort of wired to preserve our self-image and our, our feelings of, of self-worth and self-competence. So, you know, it does seem, both things seem likely. I think if you're, if you're an advisor who's running, a, you know, the kind of advisor who, who listens to a podcast about, about financial psychology and is actively trying to implement some of these things, then perhaps you have a better than average success rate. But it also seems likely that people are misremembering and, and sort of having this rosy retrospection. I'll never forget one of the takeaways from from this meta-analysis. It said basically like people's people's memory of their trading history was indistinguishable from zero, basically. Like people had like effectively zero recollection of of what they had actually done. So now that we've now that we've figured that out, Derek, you know, let's let's turn to one of the foundational ideas in the social sciences. We've talked about this at least one other time on this show, and I think I mean we could spend a month on it. This is foundational in the minds of of social scientists, psychologists everywhere. It's the stages of change model, uh, also called the trans theoretical model. If you feel like getting fancy and looking up the original research. But I think understanding the stages of change framework is is critical for advisors. When they meet a client who may be pushing back, I think the stages of change model gives a good framework for having a conversation and, and planning future interventions. Can you introduce that model to us briefly? Sure. I prefer stages of change. It's easier to say for me. So if, if people are anything like me, when I was growing up, it, just kind of felt like people would naturally want to change if they knew there was a better way to do something. Working out is only for gym rats, people might say. And then I say, well, actually, there's a lot of health benefits. You should consider working out. And they say, oh, I never knew that. Okay, thank you. It's maybe back in the day when people could have an argument or a debate in a friendly manner. But but that's what I thought kind of would happen. And that's you go into financial advising and, it, and advising is in the title. So we're giving advice. People come to us for advice. We give advice. There should be a simple equation. Yet somewhere in my mind, I knew this wasn't the case because I knew and know people who smoke cigarettes and also don't want to smoke cigarettes. And what doesn't work is for me to print out the new Newsweek article that I, that was that came out about how smoking is going to take 10 years off your life and it's gonna, quality of life is going to diminish. They don't look at it and say, wow, I wish I would have learned this sooner. Why didn't you, why were you sitting on this information? I'm going to save so much money. Instead, they push back with usually yeah, but statements. Well, yeah, but what 10 years are those? Not today's 10 years. Those are the 10 years at the end of my life and everything hurts and I'm alone and nobody likes me. I'll give up those years. 
to continue smoking anyway. So there must be something more to it. And so it turns out as people are ready or, or not to change and it kind of goes in stages. And the first stage of change is not really a stage of change at all because you're not even aware that there's anything to do. They call it pre-contemplation. So at this stage, I don't even know that there's something to do. Or if I did hear about some, I'm using the word change for something I might do, some behavior that I might implement. But if I hear of some change out there, it might not apply to me. So I'm still in pre-contemplation. So I, I, I don't even think that there's anything for me to do. It wasn't a problem until you told me it was a problem. And then once I start to think, well, maybe that, maybe that's a thing that's existing in the world and I might consider it, but I'm not ready to do it. So now I've entered contemplation stage and so I'm contemplating this thing, but I still don't want to do it or I still don't think I can do it. And then eventually there's more reasons for me to change the, you know, I could overcome that status quo bias a little bit and I got more reasons on the pro change side. And then I've entered preparation stage where I'm starting to prepare for implementing this new behavior or implementing this new thing that I need to do. And then finally you get to action stage and action stage. If you're an advisor, these are your rockstar clients. This is, this is the person that I want to change. I'm ready to change. Tell me how to change. Here's a bunch of money. Help me change. Uh, this is your rockstar clients that you want to replicate because this is where the CFP, the CFA tools work here. Somebody comes in, gives you $10,000. You give them advice. They implement the advice. They tell your friends how, how they're there. They tell their friends how good the advice was. You get all these referrals. That's how it's supposed to be. And then after that, there's like a maintenance phase where they're implementing the new uh, behaviors or the new ideas. And then like a termination phase where they're, they're not going back anymore. So they've successfully changed. But the idea is with all these different stages, we can't treat everybody as if they're in action stage, even though that's, that's very hard to do. One, because we're advice-giving creatures, we want to help, especially if you're in a helping profession, that natural instinct is to help. And it just feels like people would change if they knew there was a reason. So it's very easy to fall in the default mode of assuming everybody's in action stage. At least that's how I grew up thinking. So that's kind of the rundown of the, the various stages. Now it's a it's a great it's a great rundown. And I think you made two good points. I think one of the things that we tend to assume is this sort of rational world, right? This sort of rational world phenomenon where we say, well, if people knew what to do, they would do it. You know, I, I see a lot of that uh, conversation around financial literacy too. Like, oh, we got to teach high school kids what an interest rate is. And then they're going to make great, you know, great decisions with their credit cards. Like, well, maybe like, I mean, you know, it's, it's a start, but I mean, I, I think if we look at our own behavior, each and every one of us does things every day whether it's for our health or relationships or whatever, that is detrimental to those things that we know better than to do that we persist in doing, right? I mean, man, I love sweets. I love sweets and I know I shouldn't and I just still do. And that's kind of how it goes. So I think, you know, let, let's talk practically. We don't have time to go through every stage of change, but I think one of the most common is say moving from contemplation to preparation, right? Like people have a germ, a germ of awareness that this is something that they should be doing, but yet there's still sort of no catalyst for that change. What's like a practical step an advisor could take to move someone from say contemplation stage to onto preparation and, and eventually action? Moving people. So one, one thing that I think is interesting to 
to talk about that I haven't mentioned yet is that people aren't just in a stage of change, qua, like period. There's different areas of their life. So take a silly example. I might be in the action stage of change of going to revisit my will or my estate plan, but in the contemplation stage with regard to cutting out pasta from my life. Right? <laughs> so there's different stages of change. So an advisor could have one client who's in the action stage with regard to their investments and preparation for increasing their savings rate. And then you talk about their will and they say, I don't think so because everybody that I know that's died has a will and therefore wills kill people. So I'm not going to do that. So they're in the preparation stage for their estate plan. And then you talk to them about umbrella insurance and they say, I don't know what, what you're talking about. So the same client can be in a different stage of change for various aspects of their financial life. So with that in mind, when you find a piece of advice that you're giving and the, and the client doesn't seem to be implementing it, adding, helping them motivate themselves, finding motivation can help them move up those stages of change. And there's, there's various ways to, to do that. Some ways are to add motivation, uh, which we don't need to talk about today because that's a whole other bag of worms. And we've talked before about the three components of, of meaning in life. So purpose, you know, connecting people with their financial purpose and what their money's for, that can be quite motivating. There's that sense of, of coherence, which is your life story, helping people revisit their money story, uh, so-called story editing, that can be motivating. Uh, and then sense of significance, connecting people with their values, that can be motivating. But in all those cases, you're adding motivation to the game. There's a tool called motivational interviewing, which is finding the motivation that they already have. And so if they're if they're feeling one way and also feeling another way, this is something called ambivalence. And ambivalence is again, simultaneously feeling a couple of things at the same time. And this change journey goes through, I call it the ambivalence swamp. But to get from pre-contemplation to action, you have to go through ambivalence. I have to feel like I want this and don't want this at the same time, which means part of me wants this. So if we can speak to that part of the person that wants this, you can help them uncover motivation, the motivation that they already have, the, the reasons that they already have to change. So figuring out and learning techniques to help draw out that motivation can help them progress through the stages. Yeah. So drawing out that motivation, tying that motivation or that purpose back to their financial life, is there a place for removing roadblocks? Because one of the things that I find when I just get calls from friends who are sort of getting started on their financial journey is a lot of times they think there are big roadblocks that I tell them are, you know, like, hey, this isn't as hard as you thought it was sort of thing. And, and I feel like that is, I think a lot of people are just scared or fearful or uncertain. Is there a path for removing roadblocks that sort of unearths motivation as well? I think so. And I think part of that is, is through, I think you can get there a couple of ways. You can get there through motivational interviewing techniques where you're, you're paying close attention to the pro change verbiage that they're using and paying less attention to, you're not ignoring, but you're paying less attention to the pro status quo talk that they're giving you. So if somebody tells me that there's this roadblock, I can't do this, then they're, they're lacking uh, the confidence in themselves and figuring out other things that they've done before 
you know, so let's set this aside. Tell me another area of your life where you have overcome some kind of other challenge. What was it that got you through that? What kind of skills do you have? What kind of qualities are there about you that got you through that? And can those be applied to this? Um, so there, this kind of readiness to change. So am I ready to do this thing? I might think I can do it. I might think it's important, but maybe I, I'm not ready to do it. I also need to think it's important, this change. this It has to be something that is important to me. And then I also, even if it's important and I'm ready to do it, I have to have confidence in my ability to do it. So those three things have to happen at the same time. And if I'm lacking confidence, then we can do some of those things I was just talking about, which is figuring out what is it about you that that you already have that can get you through these roadblocks and or how can I help you get more confidence? What can I do to increase your confidence? Yeah. So are they ready, right? Does it matter to them? And do they have confidence that that they can get there? All There's a great framework for thinking about this. You know, this is a 30-minute or so podcast. I just want to kind of give a nod to some of the some of the ideas we're talking about today. You know, Derek's talked a lot about motivational interviewing. That's worth a deep dive. That's worth some of your time. This sort of approach to eliciting strengths and, and talking about previous achievements is sort of rooted in solution-focused therapy. So sort of solution-focused ideas, I, th- I think, are worth your time if you're if you're listening to this too. You know, Derek, you you talked about something earlier, which is this. You know, where I'm going to misquote you here, but but effectively, we're 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 helpful creatures, right? We we want to give advice, we want to give assistance, and this is a, a, a largely a positive impulse. But but sometimes this impulse can actually get in the way, and, and this is something social scientists refer to as the writing reflex, like this desire to make something right or to give advice. But sometimes this can be poorly received. Sometimes it's not helpful. Can you talk to us about the writing reflex, when it's helpful, when it's not, and sort of what we can do about that? Super common. And it comes from a good place. Especially the more trained you are, the more of an expert you are, the easier it is for you to see people who don't have your knowledge, who may be doing something non-optimally or, or you know, there's a better way to do it. And I want to help you. So I want to, I'm going to notice that. And I'm going to, I have this reflex. Like when your doctor hits my knee and my leg flails all over the place, somebody tells me they're doing something that I deem isn't, it could use improvement. I'm, my reflex is to jump in and help. And you've, you've felt this. Like I, I use this example. My cousin comes up to me and tells me that hey, last year you told me about diversification and I, I took that to heart. So I'm, I now own 15 S&P funds. Thank you. It feels good to be diversified. And that gut reaction you just said, it was like, oh, but that's, oh, those are all the same companies. That's the, the writing reflex. So you, and it's, that's an easy one. And that, depending on your level of expertise, that could, there's a big spectrum there. Where that might not work and where it often doesn't work is when this advice is unsolicited and most advice is unsolicited. So autonomy is a, is a need, basic psychological need that all of us have. Uh, my mentor, Ted Klontz, has a list of six basic needs. Uh, I'm blanking on the, the theory right now, but there's three basic needs there with autonomy, belonging, and, and uh, competency. But autonomy is, is a part of all of those. Wherever you're looking, autonomy is a basic need. So if I ever feel like my autonomy is threatened, 
it, it feels like an attack. You know, last time we talked about emotional flooding. If I feel like my need for autonomy is being threatened, I'm more likely to be emotionally flooded. So if I'm ambivalent, I'm, I'm holding two things at the same time. I both want to keep eating pasta and I want to lose weight. Those two things are incompatible for the most part, and I'm holding both of those at the same time. If I'm not ready to hear advice and you start arguing either of those sides, I'm out of balance. So if you come to me and say, this is all carbs, Derek, you're going to be tired all the time and you're going to get carb face and it's just, there's a better way to eat. You should like focus on your health. I'm going to say, yeah, but, because it's always, yeah, but, and then we'll argue the other side. I love pasta. This is my favorite food. All my favorite dishes are this pasta. You're not listening to me. But then you, in a different universe, you argue the different side. So you know what? You've only got a few dozen trips around the sun. YOLO. Just eat whatever you want. And I'll say, well, yeah, but you're not listening to me because it's a lot more difficult to carry 210 pounds around than 190. And so I need to kind of focus on this weight. You're not listening to me. So in either case, if I'm ambivalent and somebody else starts arguing one side, my natural reaction is to argue the other side to maintain that balance. And if you're arguing for change and I'm arguing for status quo, I'm hearing myself reinforce the status quo. So I'm talking about the status quo. I'm talking myself into staying, staying the same. So this might be worth saying more succinctly. If your clients aren't in action stage, offering them advice makes it more likely that they won't implement the advice because mm. they're going to counteract with, yeah, but statements, and then they're going to reinforce the status quo. So when, when you encounter that, right? So you're an advisor, you've, you've gone on to this, this, you know, benevolently moded writing response. You've, you've tried to give advice, you've tried to make things better and you're, you're encountering resistance, right? You're getting pushback. You're, you're hearing language that is privileging the status quo. What's, what's your move then, right? You've noticed this, you're at a crossroads. What's your next move? The way out of that is to, so now I'm the advisor, you're the client. I don't want you arguing the status quo. I want you arguing pro-change. So my, my goal here is to get you talking the other side to, to change. I want you, it's called change talk. So any conversation, any communication that's pro-implementing the advice, that's pro-change, I want that to come from you. Because if an advisor with a writing reflex meets an ambivalent client, the advisor is going to be giving all the change talk, all the reasons for change, which is more likely to, to backfire. Using tools from motivational interviewing, you can elicit change talk. Uh, and, and the clients say a lot of things. Most of it goes unrecognized. So they're, they're saying change talk all the time. We need to reflect that back. We need to affirm that. We need to highlight that. And when they start to hear their own words, so they say the words, you reflect back the change talk. Later, you give a summary. Now they're hearing it three times and maybe you send a summary email that's four times they're seeing their own reasons for change reflected back to them. And it's, you know, it's like the compound interest curve where it's going to be slower at first, but over time that becomes a pretty big wheel that reminds them of all the reasons that they want to implement this advice. You came to me for a reason. Let's, let's get all those reasons out of you. When, when you encounter this sort of ambivalence, if I'm remembering my motivational 
interviewing right, it's almost like you take sort of a Columbo approach to some of these things. Like, you know, on on, on the one hand, uh, it sounds like you want to eat pasta all day. And on the other hand, you want to lose 20 pounds. Like, you know, hey, help help me understand sort of thing. You know, how... <laughs> Help me understand how how do you approach that ambivalence when it when it arises? Because I think I think many of us want to have our cake and eat it too, especially in our financial lives. What do you do with that ambivalence when it pops up? So so let me take a brief detour through the kind of the mechanics of of listening. So clients they mean something. They've got thoughts. They've got sixty or more thoughts every day. Most of these are unarticulated. So this is why journaling is so beneficial. This is why having some kind of a professional listener is so beneficial because it takes those unarticulated thoughts, turns them into words and sentences and paragraphs, and it makes sense of this jumbled up ball of thoughts that they have. And they're here for your advice and money is stressful, so they probably haven't thought about this stuff before. So then you list some information, maybe you ask an open-ended prompt, and they're not going to ignore you, so they're going to try to answer that. So they're going to say something, but what they say might not be what they meant. And so I take a guess and I say something and then I say something and then you have to hear it. And that's the line that most people think is listening. At best, that's the hearing line. At worst, that's the waiting if I'm just waiting for my turn to speak. But so I've got to say the words, you've got to hear them, which you may hear differently. But even if you heard it perfectly, now you've got to make an interpretation of what you think I meant. So there's a, it's like this game of telephone where you, you know, in elementary school, somebody whispers something. And it goes around the circle and it's comically different because there's miscommunication is going to happen at all these different stages. So I've got two choices. One is I can assume that I got it right, but we've got, we, I think we've talked before about the negativity bias. So I'm more likely to take a negative interpretation of what somebody said. Why, what do you mean by that? So why'd you say that? So I can assume that I understood you correctly, or I can check in to see if I, if this is what you meant. And so I'm closing that that loop. And that loop closure is a reflection. So this is what reflective listening is. And that kind of sounds like, you know, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you X, Y, Z, or, you know, here's what I'm hearing. Is that, is that right? And that's reflective listening in a nutshell. I'm not adding anything yet. I'm just helping you say what you mean. And it's very common for people to say, even if every one of those steps I heard your words exactly, I correctly encoded them or decoded them, I correctly understood what you meant. But there's one line, what you meant to what you said that's completely outside of my control. So it's common for people to say, yeah, I know that's what I said, but now that I've thought about it, that's not really, that's not really right. Resist the urge to say, are you think are you calling me a bad listener? Like that was me. It's like a negative interpretation of what you just said. And lean into it and say, Okay, great. Tell me. Tell me what, tell me what you mean, or tell me, tell me more. So that is reflective listening. Yeah, we can get into more strategic reflective listening when you choose. You know, the client says a lot. So what are you going to reflect? And it's going to sound a little jargony, but there's like a simple reflection is when you're just helping them say what they mean without your interpretation. This is just everything that they've said. Is this what you mean? You can get to kind of a a complex, different versions of complex reflections, like uh, continuing the paragraph. So client says something, and then I say what I think was going to come next. So it's almost like they wrote down three sentences on a Word doc, and I put the next two sentences. 
Again, I'm not adding. I'm just saying what I think they were going to say. So what this does is it helps a why. And you might even you might even start this with because. I didn't go see that estate planning attorney. That might be their statement. And you say, because it's hard to think about what to do with your stuff after you pass away. And they'll say, no, that's not it at all. I just don't like my estate planning attorney. Okay, great. Now, now you know why they didn't go see that estate planning attorney. So there's various ways to do that. You already did the, the double-sided where you're reflecting back the ambivalence. Always put the, the change talk first. Always end with the, I'm sorry, the status quo talk. Always put the stay the same talk first and end with the change talk because people will remember the second and try to use and. So on one hand and on the other hand instead of but, which kind of cancels out the first half of it. But you know, on one hand, uh, you haven't went to see that estate planning attorney. And on the other hand, you recognize how important to it it is. And, and that's kind of stressful for you. Is that right? And so you're reflecting back the both sides of it and um, reframes. So a client says something, you say exactly the same thing back, but with a different spin. And so I, just, I can't do this. You don't know how many times I've tried. I, I keep, I've tried everything. I've tried everything. And then you might say, well, what I'm hearing is you're really persistent. You know, tell me more about your persistence. And so, there, so these different strategic reflections are ways that you can find that change talk and get them talking about the change talk. If there really is, uh, there really is such magic and such power in someone hearing their words back, right? Perhaps with a little bit of the subtext highlighted, you know, with a little bit of your own interpretation. And helping them high that, highlight that ambivalence, which they may have been unaware of and, and work through it, just hearing those words back is often transformative. It helps it become real in a way that it wasn't before and shows them that they perhaps had more access to the answer than, than they thought. I think also sometimes it highlights the ways that we're being silly and being self-defeating, but, but you're able to do it in a gentle way. When you're not saying, look, you're being stupid or, you know, look, you're being self-defeating, having them hear it, they can come to their own conclusions, uh, which is, of course, more powerful. You know, I've heard you talk about this. I've heard a uh, friend of the show, Dr. Christy Archuleta, talk about this. You advocate for the use of scaling questions and change rulers as part of this a process of working with resistant uh, clients. This is a practical uh, and powerful tool for eliciting change. Can you can you talk to us about scaling questions and change rulers? Yeah, and they're the same thing, just depending on people have a different preference for what to call it. But these are a tool for eliciting change talk. And so basically, you're you're saying, let's put a number on this. Scale of one to ten. One is you're you're not. This isn't important to you. This is the least important thing you can think of. And ten is it's the most important thing for you to prioritize right now. How important is this for you? Or how confident are you that you can do this? Or how ready are you to do this? And the trick is you don't care about the absolute number. You don't care about the the number that they give you. What matters is your second question, your follow-up question, which is why is it so high? No matter what the what the question or what the answer was, rather. So it's a it's a six. You say, Oh great. Well, you didn't you give give it a five or a three. What got you all the way up to six? And if you think about that for a second, it's because you're asking them all the reasons it's so high, all the reasons that they're ready, all the reasons that they're confident, all the reasons that it's important. That's change talk. So you've elicited change talk by asking why is it so high. 
resist the urge. This is very common to ask, why isn't it higher? It'll say a nine. Oh, so close. Why, why not a 10? And if you think about that for a second, it's because you're asking them all the reasons they suck and they can't do it. And I, I don't have this and I, I'm never going to be perfect. You don't want them talking about that. So ask them, why is it so high? And get talking about that. Some people will volunteer that information. It's an eight. I'd love to give it a 10, but you know, don't, don't cut them off. Let them tell you all the reasons that they, they couldn't get it to a 10, which will actually strengthen your next question, which is, well, okay, so you're an eight. And, and despite all those reasons, you still gave it an eight and not a four. Why is it an eight? Now they're talking to themselves, why is an eight, despite already hearing all those negatives. So that can be powering. And then that's what they already have. And then the next follow-up question might be, how can you help? So you gave it a six. What would it take? How could I help? What would it take to get you from a six to a seven? And now they're going to tell you how you can help them move up or a six to a six and a half. How can I help you get to a six and a six and a half or a seven? And then they'll tell you all the reasons or all the things that, that might work. Maybe you could do it with me, or maybe you could do it for me, or maybe you could do most of it for me, or maybe give me the introduction, but they'll tell you how you can help them instead of you assuming, which is like my default mode is to assume that I know what's going to be best for you. Uh, I want them to tell me instead. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's such a natural impulse, right? To go a six, like why is it? Ugh, like why why so low? You know why why not a ten? What's wrong? You know, but it, it's counterintuitive but powerful when you talk about it. Say, oh six, like you know why why so high? Why why isn't it a two? And there you're engaged in that solution focused positive psychology idea of it eliciting strengths, eliciting previous wins talking about change, talking about and highlighting the motivation that they do have. And then with that sort of the, the follow-up question, you can offer your own support, uh, you know, uh, channeled through them to say, okay, how can we continue to make progress and, and get you to where you want to go? I, I love that. So, you know, in addition to Derek's great work on this, you know, I'd encourage folks to go back and listen to my conversation uh, with Dr. Moira Summers, she has a great book called Advice That Sticks, which is all about sort of giving, yeah, just like it sounds like giving advice in a way that's that's sticky and gets followed through on. Uh, and I'd also encourage folks to go check out the uh, Orion Advisor Academy has a course called Communicating with Empathy, uh, which is a free CE course where we cover some of these things too. So Derek, you're uh, you're great. You're, you're you're great to come back again in such quick succession. Uh, if people want to learn more about your work broadly, your work your work with meaning and money, and and your work around uh, helping uh, elicit change and resistant clients, where can folks read about you and and find out more about you and your work? Yeah, anybody who's interested in this this kind of motivational interviewing stuff for advisors, I'm putting together a, a masterclass now. So meaningfulmoney.like slash mi if you want to join that wait list but meaning.blog that's where i do all my writing and and sketches and uh, this newsletter that i write i just recently opened this up to license to other advisors who want to use this content in front of their clients as well so so check that out but it's all at meaning.blog or meaningfulmoney.life beautiful derek thanks for coming back thank you it was great Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com.
www.thepodcastmedia.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.